Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel and chapter number 13. The book of 1 Samuel and chapter number 13. We're progressing forward in our series of the life and ministry of David. And that we're exploring at this part, the book of 1 Samuel, looking at Samuel's, or the book, ah, David's life. And remember that the book of 1 Samuel is a comparison. That David is a man after God's own heart, whereas King Saul is a man after the people's own heart. And as we examine Saul, we can see quite a bit about our people. Because if you don't mind, may I reveal a truth? That if Saul is a man after the people's own heart, it is also a revelation of our own heart, of what our heart is like. That the Bible says that our heart is wicked. It is desperately deceitful. It will lie to you. It will trick you. Who could know it? Well, God can know it. And that when we study Saul, we also examine who we are. Because God explains who we are. That Saul is a reflection of what every single one of us is like outside of the Lord Jesus Christ's help. And so it's a convicting study. But then we get the comparison. We get to David. And we can see that there is such a thing as a man with God's own heart. And what does that mean? What does that entail? Well, if you don't mind, let's look at that tonight. Notice with me in the book of 1 Samuel chapter number 13. The book of 1 Samuel chapter number 13. And if you don't mind, pick it up starting in verse number 1. The book of 1 Samuel chapter 13 and in verse number one, notice with me in verse one, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines. And that Israel also was an abomination with the Philistines. <laughs> And had in abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in mismatch eastward from Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait. For the people were distressed. Then the people did hide themselves in the caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan 
into, uh, to the land of Gad in Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Saul said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash, therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. I forced myself thereof, and the offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. Because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 13? The book of 1 Samuel chapter number 13. And notice the phrase, if you don't mind, in verse number 14. It says, the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And with the Lord's help, we want to preach on this, that the Lord sought him a man after his own heart. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And again, thank you for opening up the Bible and opening up these historical books that we could glean principles and learn more about you and how you deal with man. Learning more about you and whom you are and the proper response to you. I'm asking that we would get a clear vision of what our heart is truly like and then see a clear vision of what you would desire it to be like. That we would have an understanding that we wouldn't have a misunderstanding of terms, but we would know exactly what you mean and know exactly what our response is because of it. Lord, we need you today. We need you. Thank you for the victories that we've seen. Thank you so much for what you've done already. We're asking that you do it again, that you continue to be God. Lord, I need you once again tonight. I need you. I dare not go on without you. Please, the best I know how I surrender to you, fill me with your precious spirit now. That you get your own work accomplished today. Open up your word. Open up our hearts. Open up our minds. That we may develop the heart you desire us to have. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, previously... In the life and ministry of David. We saw that the people had rejected God. And as they rejected God. They turned their heart and attention to the government. The government's the answer. We want a king. And so they demanded a king. And because they, the people had rejected God. God gave them a king after their own heart. By the name of King Saul. 
Now, King Saul had already received a victory early on in his reign and at the city of Jabesh Gilead. And after that, they established the capital city inside of Israel, inside of the city of Gilgal. So Gilgal was the first city inside of Israel, the, the capital city. Now, after this, as they've established the capital in Gilgal, Samuel, the prophet, stood up and he preached a message to all the people, rebuking them and chastising them for their heart towards the matter. And Saul is standing there right beside him. And that Samuel gave a promise to them that said, listen here, if you be obedient to God, if you don't rebel against his commandments, God will bless you and your leaders and they will continue to follow after the Lord. But if your leaders aren't following the Lord, it is evidence that our hearts rebellious and that we are not following after the Lord. And then he went on and gave some practical explanation. What does it mean to follow after God? What does it mean to, to follow him? And remember the whole time, where is King Saul? He was on stage with him. He was standing right beside him. He heard the message. And he heard what he ought to do. Now we come to about one plus two years in the future. One to two years in the future. And now we're coming to the place where the Philistines are once again threatening the people of Israel. Notice if you don't mind as we begin this narrative and getting the context of it. That we see the defiance against the enemy. The defiance against the enemy. Notice with me in 1 Samuel 13 and starting at verse 1. 1 Samuel 13 and verse 1. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul at Mishmash in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. So we start off with battle lines. Saul has got a contingent with him of 2,000 people. Jonathan... As at a different place, he has 1,000. 2,000 plus 1,000 is 3,000. So just 3,000 men is all that Saul has at this specific time. Saul is at one place. Jonathan's at another place. Notice with me in verse number 3. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah. Now this is the first time we're introduced to Jonathan. Jonathan is a good guy. He's actually a hero all throughout the first part of 1 Samuel. He's Saul's son. But there's something with him that he tries to be right. This is a good guy. He's brave in battle. He's uh, fearless. He believes that God could give the victory. And he's willing to step out by faith. And so Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines. By the way, how many people did he have? 1,000. He had 1,000 people and they had enough audacity to go attack a garrison. Full of soldiers. We got this. And they attack a garrison that was in Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So Jonathan went and uh, poked the bear, destroyed this garrison. And then Saul blows the trumpet and said, Listen here. We can do this. We can fight. Well, the Philistines do not react kindly to this. Notice with me in verse 4. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines. Now remember, technically, it's actually Jonathan, but Saul's keeping the credit. And that Israel was, an, was had an abomination, the Philistines. Now that's some awkward phrasing, but it carries the idea that it carries the idea that 
that the Hebrews have poked the bear enough. They're like a little annoying fly. They're like a mosquito that's going around. And the Philistines say, we're done with this. We're tired of you getting your little pot shots in. We're going to take care of business now. So basically, they provoke the bear long enough. Now the bear is going to charge. What, what do they do? Uh, <laughs> well, the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Verse 5, And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots. Now, remember, Saul had 3,000 men between him and Jonathan. Here is 30,000 chariots. We haven't even talked about the men yet. 30,000 chariots. Add to that 6,000 horsemen. So here are people trained on the horse, cavalry, 6,000. Add to that the people as the sand which is in the sea. So you had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and a whole contingent army that's going to come and swat this mosquito. Now, if you were Israel at this time, what would your reaction be? Probably like theirs, very scared and run and hide. In fact, that's exactly what happened. So the Philistines, they pitched their tit in mismatch and, and prepared to attack Israel. Verse number six, and when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed. Now, 3,000 people actively in active duty versus this whole army that you can't even count. Who's going to win? And the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets. And in rocks, and in high places, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over to Jordan, to the land of Gilgad, and, or Gad and Gilgad, or Gilead. For Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now, Jonathan goes and pokes the bear, and then they run, and the bear mounts up. And it is coming with a mighty army. And the people are pretty scared now. What are we going to do? But you know, God knows exactly what he's going to do. God has a plan. But you know, this whole plan, this whole thing is going to end up being a trial for Saul. I'm giving you a hint of what's happening. This is all for Saul's benefit. You ever want to decide to figure out what's in your heart? Put pressure in it. You ever want to know what's in a sponge? You squeeze the sponge and what comes out was what's in it. Does it make sense? You put some pressure on someone and their heart will be revealed. If someone gets to the place where out of pressure they begin to curse and swear, well, that's because that was what was in them. Does that make sense? Pressure reveals the heart. And God is allowing pressure on, on Saul so that way his heart is revealed. Now, did God already know his heart? So who's it being revealed to? Not to God, but to Saul for himself. That he can see what's in there. That's why God allows pressure. So we start off with the defiance against the enemy. They swat the bear. The bear now mounts up. People are scared. What are we going to do? Now we come to the second thing here. The defeat of, Satan's, of Saul's pride. The defeat of Saul's pride. Notice, if you don't mind, in verse number 8. And he, that Saul, tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. So let's pause here to get context. All right? So you got the armies of Philistine that are mounting up and gathering together. They know they're going to have to fight soon. 
Samuel says, Saul, in seven days I'm going to show up and we're going to sacrifice to God. We're going to worship God and we're going to trust that God is going to be here. Seven days. Wait seven days. That's a pretty simple command, right? You wait here seven days and I'm going to show up. Then we'll sacrifice. We'll trust God for God to win the victory. Wait seven days. Pretty easy commandment to obey, right? Well, you think. Notice if you don't mind what occurs now. <laughs> verse number nine, or verse number, excuse me, verse number eight again. And he, Saul, tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him, Saul. So what happens is that six and a half days have come. Not the full seven, but six and a half days. And Saul is saying, I'm tired of waiting. Come on, we got to go. Where's he at? Come on. And he watches people as they start scattering. Some people are saying, well, maybe this is it where I ought to be. And he's watching people go away from him. He's taking it as a personal rejection. They're not trusting to me no more. They're, they're failing. And he's getting to the place where his pride is acting up because it's not about the Lord. It's about him. It's about him. What do people think about me? People are abandoning me. They're running away from me. They don't trust me anymore. And he's only worried about people's opinion of him. And he wants everyone to think about him highly. He wants everyone to think that he's great. He wants everyone to think that he hasn't done anything wrong. This pride is going to come to an effect. Notice, if you don't mind, in verse 9 again. And Saul said, bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, he is king and he is now taking upon him the job of a prophet, of a priest. That was not his job to do and that was not the instructions he was told. But he got tired of waiting and he took things upon himself and he offered this burnt sacrifice. Notice, if you don't mind, in verse number 10. And it came to pass that as soon as he made end of the offering of the burnt offering. Isn't it always the way just as soon as you finish sin? Someone comes by and checks up on you. Just as soon as you get done with it. Now remember, Samuel said seven days. Seven days weren't over yet. He was still within his time frame. Saul jumped the gun. And now he comes, Samuel comes, notice what he does. Uh, it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of the offering, burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. Now, what we see here is a problem. He comes out to Samuel as if there's, he did nothing wrong. Hey, Samuel, I just want to let you know you weren't needed. We took care of things ourselves. And if you don't mind, I'd like to take some time now as we're studying the idea of the defeat of Saul. <laughs> uh, excuse me. <clears throat> the defeat against Saul's pride. Notice, if you don't mind, some things about sin. Remember that the study of Saul is a picture of our own heart. It's a picture of sin and how we respond to sin. One thing I want to start off with is that, first of all, his self-sufficiency led to impatience. His self-sufficiency led to impatience. 
Notice if you don't mind again in verse number nine. Uh, verse number 8 and 9. And he tarried seven days, according to the set time that Samuel appointed. And Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Here it is self-sufficiency. I don't need Samuel. I could do it myself. I don't need the Lord. I could do it myself. Why do I have to wait on God when I could get the job done myself? You see, that's one thing that leads us to sin, is that we don't think that we need God. I could do it myself, and so we go forward past God, not willing to wait on Him. You know waiting is the ultimate form of worship? If you're able to wait on God, that means you trust Him. When we get to the place where we say, I can take care of it myself, we get impatient. Well, I'll just take care of it. There's no reason to go wait. This is sin. His self-sufficiency led to impatience. Notice, if you don't mind, a second thing dealing with the idea of the revelation of our heart as we look at Saul is that, first of all, his self-sufficiency led to impatience, but we also see his pride led to the blindness of his own actions. His pride led to the blindness of his own actions. So when Saul went down to greet Samuel, Remember, he just got through doing an act that was not his responsibility to do. He was not supposed to do the burnt offering. Samuel was supposed to do the burnt offering. It was not his job. Well, he gets done doing the burnt offering. Samuel comes. He goes down and greets him like he's done nothing wrong. Hey, Samuel, glad to see you. About time you showed up. He didn't say, well, I messed up. You know, I, I didn't wait for you. He played it off like nothing's wrong. Isn't it just like sin that we do something wrong and we try to hide it? We try to cover it up. And in fact, what made it worse is that he didn't just try to cover it up. He didn't think he did anything wrong. That's some of the most horrible parts of sin is that we get so blinded we don't think we did anything wrong. When it's very blatant, you did. That's what sin does to us. It blinds us. It deceives us. Well, you didn't do anything wrong. And that's where self-righteousness comes in. Because if someone tries to correct us, we like to fight back. Well, I didn't do anything wrong. And that's pride. It's pride. Notice as it goes on. That his pride led to blindness of his own self. He refused to acknowledge that he did wrong. We come to a third thing. His pride and impatience led to disobedience. His pride and impatience led to disobedience. So as he goes up to go greet Samuel, Samuel <coughs> doesn't even give him a chance to speak. Notice in verse 11. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? Samuel knew what had happened. You know, parents often ask kids the question not to uh, find out what happened, but because they want you to admit what happened. They want you to say what happened. Samuel already knew what occurred. Saul went ahead and sinned, went ahead and did something that wasn't his responsibility. And he said, what'd you do? I don't know what you're talking about. He tried to play it off like he did nothing wrong immediately. But we see, what is his explanation? Now, this is where things turn worse. It's bad enough that he sinned, but the Bible often says idolatry and iniquity go hand in hand. It carries the idea 
in the Bible, it teaches us that when you sin, often lying follows afterwards. Now you have to cover it up. Now you have to make excuses. And this is the problem. Instead of just saying, hey, you know what? I messed up. He now is excusing his sin, which is making it worse. Verse 11. And Samuel said, what hast thou done? And Saul says, because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou comest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash, what happened is he saw the people were scattered, and he felt like he had to do something. He had to do something. You know, that's the problem with waiting that we hate. We feel like we've got to do something. We've got to do something. I've got to make something happen. When waiting on God is trusting that he's going to make it happen in his own timing. You see, you either live your life by force or you live your life by faith. Either you say, I can trust God to do this or I've got to get something done. I've got to do something. I've got to make it work. Pride and impatience lead to disobedience. Because of his pride, because of his impatience, it caused him to sin, some, to do something he knows he was not supposed to do. Pride and impatience. I can do this, and I'm tired of waiting. I'm going to do it myself. Instead of waiting for God to get the results accomplished. Then he made it worse. He blamed someone else for his sin. He blamed someone else for his sin. Verse 11. And Samuel said, what hast thou done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me. And that thou comest not in the days appointed. It's your fault. You're the reason why I sinned. If you would have been on time. If you would have kept your word. By the way, Samuel was still within his time limit. It happened still that same day. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have had to sin. You know, when we sin, we always find someone else's fault. The reason why I lied is because so-and-so did this. The reason why I stole is because so-and-so did this. If you look back, can't you always find someone else to blame? Look back at the times you get in trouble. It's almost like a child. Well, why'd you cheat on the test? Because Bobby gave me his test. I wouldn't have sinned if it wasn't for Bobby. Well, why'd you write in the wall? Well, I wrote on the wall because so-and-so dared me. You can always find someone to blame your sin. Why'd you get so angry? Well, it's because so-and-so, they're the reason. Finding someone else to blame. Just compounding the sin. It's bad enough that he did the action, but he's refusing to admit that he's wrong. He's giving excuses of why to justify himself. Whenever you get to the place where you're justifying yourself, that is already pride. Where you have to think of a reason. Again, we've all been there and done that. Have you ever gotten trouble? And you knew you had to talk to the principal or your parents or your boss. And you start rehearsing in your mind what you're going to say in order to make you look better or someone else to look worse. That's pride. That's making excuses. That's justifying yourself rather than to say, I messed up. How can we fix this? Nobody likes to do that. We'll say, yeah, I did it, but. And that but comes in there. And you give your reasoning why it's not your fault why you sinned. Saul is just like we are. It's a revelation of our own heart. That we blame someone else for the reason why we sin. We blame someone else for why 
we are not the way that we're supposed to be. We find a reason why we are not currently following the Lord the way that we ought to. It's someone else's fault. It's someone else's fault. Notice as he goes on. He doesn't stop there. Notice if you don't mind. He, <laughs> he hid his sin under the cover of hypocrisy. He covered his sin under the cover of hypocrisy. Verse number 12. Therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal. And I have not made supplication to the Lord. I forced myself thereof and offered a burnt offering. But you don't understand, preacher. You don't understand the reason why I sinned is I did it for God. I didn't want to face the Philistines without saying my prayers. I didn't want the army to come and, and, and me have to face them without me doing what I needed to for God. Well, it wasn't his job to do it. You know, so often our brains will tie in religious hypocrisy. And we'll come up with some religious reason why we should get away with our sin. We'll find some reason. We'll come up with a good reason. Well, God told me to. If you could forgive the personal illustration. There was a young man who attended uh, a year or two of Bible college. So he had some religious fervor to it. Then he uh, quit Bible college and joined the Marines. And the Marines, they do kind of rewire you a little bit. And some wires got crossed that wasn't supposed to cross. And he came back on leave and had it in his mind that God told him to go burn down the local um, X-rated bookshop. God told me to go burn it down. Now, did God tell him to burn it down? No, because that is sin. It's not his property. It's not his to do with. He should be able to trust God to take care of that. That's not his responsibility. Oh, but you know, the whole time when he's being arrested and being interviewed, he's blaming God. God told me to burn it down. God turned it to burn me down. He's blaming God for the reason why he disobeyed the Bible. God will never tell you to disobey the Bible. And you can't blame God for your sin. Well, the reason why I told a lie is because God. God's not going to tell you to lie. Well, the reason why I cheated is because God's not going to tell you to cheat. Well, the reason why I decided not to read my Bible is because God told God didn't tell you not to read your Bible. But people could find a religious reason and blame God for it and wrap it up in hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy. Well, I'm holy enough that I can do this and get away with it. No. But he wrapped it around with religious hypocrisy. Notice, if you don't mind, something else. He blamed the situation that caused him to sin. Notice, if you don't mind, once again, in verse number 12. Therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me in Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself thereof. Poor Saul, I forced myself. I found no other choice but to disobey God. The situation demanded that I disobey God. I, I just, I had no other choice. Do you understand? There's a teaching out there called situational ethics. Situational ethics is a philosophy that says that your situation will determine what is right. That is not a true saying at all. It is never wrong to do right. And it is never right to do wrong. 
There is not a situation where lying is acceptable in everyday life. You understand that? Now, we're, we understand playing a board game, those type of things. That's not what we're talking about. I'm meaning lying to your boss. Telling your teacher that your dog ate your homework. There's not a situation that requires you to disobey God's holy word. There's no such thing as situational ethics. Another term for that is called pragmatism. The idea of pragmatism says that the ends justify the means. The ends justify the means. That it doesn't matter how we got there as long as we get to the result. That is not true. The result is up to God, not to you. God is concerned on how you get it done. And then the result comes up to him. Situational ethics does not work. It is not acceptable to God. But I have heard many of preacher justify cheating on their taxes because it's for the greater good. I have heard many of a preacher say it's all right to lie or steal from work because it's for the greater good. What if I was to say that a hundred of us preachers, eh, seven of us preachers, decided we were going to go rob a bank and take all the money and give it to missions? Is giving to missions a good thing? It is. But how we got the money is a big deal. You understand? That you can't blame the situation. The situation does not dictate what is right and what is wrong. The Bible dictates what is right and what is wrong. God dictates what's right and what's wrong. But Saul said, the situation, you don't understand, the Philistines were there. And I just, I felt forced because of my situation to do this. And it was the right thing to do at the time. It was not. It was not. Now, all of this just reveals Saul's heart. It reveals his heart. That the thing that you should hopefully be picking up. Is that it is not repented. He is not sorry at all. He's sorry that he may have got caught. But he's not sorry that he did the act. He feels that he's justified. He feels that he is correct in what he did in disobeying the commandment of God. Which now brings us to disobedience and consequences. Disobedience and consequences. Sin always has consequences. And remember, as I told you on the onset, I told you, this is Saul's trial. He's being put to test. He's going to be shown whether he's going to obey God no matter what the situation is. Or if he's going to disobey God. He just added pressure. Now, granted, that's a lot of pressure having an army with more people than you can count outside the walls. But that's when you need to trust God the most. Amen. Notice, if you don't mind, as Samuel now responds in verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Now, remember, the word foolish carries the idea without regard to God. Saul, the things that you just did, you weren't even thinking about God when you did them. If you were having God in your mind, if you were thinking about what did God want, you wouldn't have done this. <clears throat> Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now the Lord would have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. He said, I want to let you know this is your test. This is your trial. And if you would have passed this, God would have established your family dynasty as king forever. You know that God offered that to Saul? 
It was offered and rejected. Because Saul not only sinned, but he came up with every excuse to justify why he was right in what he did. That's a problem. He failed the test. So now the other shoe drops. Verse 14. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought himself a man after his God's own heart. And the Lord commanded him to be captain of his people. Because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Saul, you failed your test. And this was a big test. You, know, you knew better. But not only did you sin, you came up with every excuse to justify why what you did was right. And you were wrong. You were not repentant. You were not sorry. And sorry, there's consequences. The kingdom is going to come from your hands. God's giving it to someone else. Because God is looking for a man after his own heart. Now, this comes to a very important question and where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Defining God's own heart. Defining God's own heart. Remember that whenever we use terms like this, we always have to define what we mean. Because if you don't define it, you can make it say anything. What does it mean, a man after God's own heart? What does it mean for someone to have God's own heart? Well, if you misdefine it, you could hurt a lot of people. If you misdefine it, you can make it so it's unachievable. If you misdefine it, you can make it say something that God did not intend. So let's define it. If you don't mind, turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts in chapter 13. I'll build you up a small case really quick. The book of Acts chapter 13 gives a commentary. What we have here is that, that Peter is preaching in Acts 13. Actually, Paul is preaching, rather. He's preaching a message, and he's making a commentary on this same exact event. So let's see what the Apostle Paul says in his message dealing with this event. Acts chapter 13, and notice with me in verse number 21. Acts 13 and verse 21. Afterwards, they desired a king. So the people desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. Now, we've already seen that. The people demanded a king. God gave them Saul. Verse 22. And when he had removed him, that Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom he, God, gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. So we come to the idea that David was the man after God's own heart. Well, that helps us. If we want to find out what a man after God's own heart is, then we come to the place of David. Now, as we study the life of David, does that mean that a man after God's own heart is without sin? Okay, it, it, maybe it's just someone who just sins a little bit. Is that what it is? Well, have you ever studied the life of David as we are? Do you know that David was an adulterer? There's almost no worse crime to do in all of the world than adultery. Because it hurts so many people. But it didn't stop there. Not only was David an adulterer, he was a murderer. A murderer. Now that's some pretty big sins. I'm pretty sure that most of you have never committed murder. Don't tell me about it if you have. 
But you understand, those are two big sins. So does it mean that a man after God's own heart is sinless? No. Then what made the difference? I meant Saul didn't just commit adultery. He didn't murder. He sacrificed an animal. What's the difference? Let me tell you what the difference is. Is that when Saul was pointed out that he did wrong, he made up excuse and justified his actions. He did not repent. He did not get right. He tried to convince everyone else that he was right for doing wrong. David, when he sinned and was confronted with his sin, he repented. He repented and got right with God. What is a man after God's own heart? It is not someone with the absence of sin, but someone when confronted about their sin gets right with God. That he's a good repenter. We're going to study a little bit later Psalm 51. It's a great psalm. I encourage you to read it on your own, but create in me a clean heart. He explains in there, it's against thee and thee only have I sinned. He's confessing his sin. This is David's great heart repenting towards God, coming back to him and saying, I messed up. Lord, I messed up. Help me to get right. What made David a man after God's own heart is that he didn't have the absence of sin, but he repented and got right when he did get confronted with sin. Do you know that we can have God's heart? We can have that same thing. It doesn't mean the absence of sin, but it means that we're a good repenter. That is why the book of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 exists, that verse. That the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that it says, if thou shalt confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The word confess doesn't mean you're telling on yourself. You've heard me give an illustration before of a, a drunkard who came in a church service and knelt down at the altar and the preacher prayed for him and said, and the preacher, as he's talking to God, says, God, you know how this man came in drunk? And the drunkard said, don't tell God. He doesn't need to know that. You know, <laughs> when we confessing our sins, we're not telling on ourselves. God already knows. The word confess carries the idea that we're agreeing with God. I agree with God that I messed up. That's what it means to confess. <laughs> in our household, the biggest offense that you could commit in our household is lying. Lying. Bigger than anything else. Why? Because as long as my kids are honest with me, it doesn't matter how much trouble they get into, as long as they're honest with me, I can help them. The same thing's true with God. It doesn't matter how much trouble you get into. If you are honest with God, he will help you. You see, that's the problem. Is that we don't like to be honest with God. Have you ever found yourself even in your prayers justifying your actions to God? Like you're trying to convince him that you were right for doing wrong. I don't know if you've ever done that, but that's what your flesh does. I've done that. I'm not bragging on it. I'm saying it's our heart. That's how filthy and wicked it is. That we like to tell, yeah, God, sure, I told a lie there. But you all understand, I had to. And you give your reasons to God. By the way, you're not going to convince God. But as long as we're not going to be honest with him, 
He can't help us. You see, the first step of getting right, the first step of restoring, the first step of trying to fix the situation is for you to be honest with God and say, God, I messed up. I did wrong. Help me. And it doesn't matter how much trouble you are in. It doesn't matter how much, uh, how far you got away. As long as you're honest with God, he can help. But again, that's that old pride. But it's the difference of the hearts. Here is one man who, when confronted with sin, justified and made excuse and refused to admit that he was wrong. Here's another man who did some great sins, but he was willing to admit to God that he was wrong and allow God to help him. That's the difference. So when we do a study, we're doing a comparison between two people. And it comes down to what type of heart do you have? What made David a man after God's own heart? It's not that he was without sin. It's just that he was a good repenter. A good repenter. That's the wonderful thing about 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But we just have to stop making excuses, stop justifying ourselves, and get right. And when authority points out to you that you messed up, instead of trying to give excuses of why you are right in doing that, humble yourself and say, I was wrong. You were right. Let's get this fixed. It goes a long way. By the way, it just doesn't work for church. You mess up at work. You know how many employees lie and make excuses? Employers will almost drop dead on the floor if you go, hey, I just messed up. How can I fix it? Instead of trying to hide it or blame it on someone else. Something broke and you close the door and walk away and let someone else find it. If we're honest relationships between husbands and wives would get better. If someone said, you know what? I am wrong. Let's fix this. Relationships between teenagers and parents. If a teenager will say, I was wrong. You know, the same thing's true about parents. It's good for parents to admit to their kids that they messed up from time to time and be honest, I messed up. Because we're teaching them how to be humble and we're teaching them how to repent. Because no one's perfect. But it comes idea, what type of heart? We do sin, and it's unfortunate. I hope we don't sin anymore, but when we do, are you honest with your sin? Or do you make excuses? Do you cover it up? Do you blame someone else? Or are you willing to man up and say, I messed up. Let's get this fixed. As long as you're honest with God, He can help you. But as long as you keep playing games with God, he can't help you. Why is it God fixing things? He's waiting on you. Waiting on you. For you to finally humble yourself and say, God, I need your help. I messed up. Help me. And he will. He will. How a man takes rebuke speaks a lot about his character. What type of heart do we have? Let's pray and work on developing, having a heart after God, being good repenters when God, sin is exposed in our life.
Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you. Thank you.